Good morning. Welcome to Money for Nothing. I'm Brian Curtis. Well, in headlines this morning, the United States throws its weight behind a new prime minister in Iraq, although the current prime minister doesn't want to go. The Fed vice chair warns of slow growth, strengthening the doves on the FOMC, uh, the committee that makes the decision about interest rates. European stocks did rally overnight after a very weak patch of late, mostly because of Ukraine. And Morgan Stanley says, you bears, well, you don't really have a case. Equities are just not going down. So to get us started here, the first of a couple of teases. I pledge our support to him as well as to President Masum and Speaker Jabouri as they work together to form this government. I watched that televised speech early this morning, uh, sometime around five o'clock, and he didn't mention the outgoing prime minister at all. So that sets up kind of interesting. On markets, former bear turned bull Adam Parker of Morgan Stanley has this. You got to like the market more now than you did a month ago. It, the market's lower and earnings look better. And isn't he worried about jobs and slow growth? You know, I think about the S&P 500, how to make money in the stock market, and much less about the economy. Okay, we'll explain that thinking. Uh, he's just not money hungry, but uh, he does have uh, a method to that madness. Uh, locally, Dairy Farm is paying about a, almost a billion Hong Kong dollars for a fifth of China's Yonghoi superstores. Uh, Lee Cushing looks to be selling again. That is that Hutch might sell developer Hutchison Harbor Ring to Oceanwide Holdings. The price tag is almost half a billion U.S. dollars, so not just a small deal. And for a serious story that sounds Sounds a bit like a tease. How to make a billion dollars or almost a billion dollars in a single day when your salary is just one dollar per year. So you have to stay with us for that story coming up. Our guests are Francis Loon of Geo Securities on Markets. Francis will be along in just a minute. Also joining us for a look at regional investment strategy is John Woods of City Private Bank. And Joseph Giacobelli from Bloomberg Intelligence will be here to discuss the impact of China's growing appetite for electricity. So if markets are your thing, here's how they're changing hands or moving now in early trading. The Nikkei is up 31 points, a fifth of a percent. Australia is higher and so is Seoul. So definitely green numbers and a bullish tint to these markets. The dollar is trading now at 1.338 US and the dollar yen is 102.22. So we'll get into some of our stories uh, and then we'll bring in our first guest. The Obama administration has welcomed the announcement of a new prime minister in Iraq. The president congratulated the new official in a brief televised speech, but did not mention the outgoing Prime Minister Nouri al-Maliki. Earlier today, Vice President Biden and I called Dr. Abadi to congratulate him and to urge him to form a new cabinet as quickly as possible, one that's inclusive of all Iraqis and one that represents all Iraqis. I pledged our support to him, as well as to President Masum and Speaker Jabouri, as they work together to form this government. The naming of a new prime minister breaks a long political deadlock, but it also seems to take Iraq into perhaps a new phase. That's because Mr. al-Maliki doesn't want to go. Elsewhere, the Fed's number two official, Stanley Fisher, says global growth has been disappointing. He warned of fundamental problems that might hold back growth and might keep demand weak. These demand effects all play a significant role in explaining what has been happening in the U.S. Uh, economy, and these were not effects that could have been accurately predicted based on past recession experiences, or even by the fact that this recession started with a major financial crisis. But when we turn to the aggregate supply side, we also see important signs of a slowdown of growth, uh, 
in the productive capacity of the economy, the U.S. economy, in the growth in labor supply, capital investment, and productivity. This may well reflect factors which relate to the period before the recession as well as to the recession. So basically what Mr. Fisher is saying is, is that it's possible that weakness in the global economy reflects a more structural longer term shift in the economy. For bulls like Adam Parker at Morgan Stanley, that was kind of music to their ears. Because you don't want really, really strong economic data because it makes it more likely you're closer to the top of the cycle. What you want is measured growth, accommodative policymakers. I think that's the bull case for the equity market. One of the things I, I talk about a lot is how am I going to call the top of the cycle again. Our phrase for it is hubris and debt. Management arrogance gone awry. Too much hiring, too much inventory, too much capital spending. As long as they don't do that, the probability of the cycle uh, ending isn't really there. And you can kind of have a, a slow and steady you know, cycle that lasts a long time. Global stocks rose the most since April overnight. The yen fell on optimism that uh, tensions between Russia and Ukraine will ease a bit. Emerging markets rallied and oil gained as well. The MSCI All-Country World Index was up not 0.8 percent. The S&P 500 up uh, less than that, up 0.3 percent. The Dow gained 16 points to 16,569. But a very good rally in Europe overnight where the stock's uh, 600, so reflecting uh, a big broad Broad swath of stocks in Europe up 1.4 percent. Ten-year Treasury rates were a little changed at 2.42 percent. Let's go back to Mr. Parker. He's not worried about inflation. My view is the biggest risk to the U.S. equity market is deflation, not inflation. So I'm not really worried about inflation. If we have inflation, we can use conventional measures to slow it down someday. I think we'd all like to have inflation. I think the bigger risk is deflation because then what do we do? Do we go back and announce another QE again? We just told you we were going to unwind that. So I, I think it's far more worrisome uh, to have deflation. I think they're going to err on the side of trying to make sure that they avoid that. So if you're a portfolio manager or if you're just managing your own portfolio, your own uh, uh, investments, um, this guy was a really big bear last year, and he had to admit that he was very wrong. Now he's pretty bullish on stocks. Look, we, you know, we were bullish for a long time. In early July, we wrote in our second half of your preview saying we're more balanced than bullish. We're a little worried about some things. We got the worst month we've had in a while. Earnings season, I think, was okay. So I think it sets up a little bit better now. And I think you've you got to like the market more now than you did a month ago. It, the market's lower and earnings look better. So uh, I'm a little bit more optimistic. And I think people are asking me every day, the PMs I talk to, portfolio managers, saying, all right, if I want to get bullish, what do I own? And what would he own? What then are his picks? So we like healthcare. That's been our biggest overweight, particularly pharma and medical distribution. We also like tech. I think software is going to get the bid in the second half of the year. You've got companies, they're not hiring a lot, as we talked about. They're not doing a lot of catbacks. They're investing in productivity. And I think you'll see some pretty good trends there uh, heading into the second half of the year. So those are our two biggest bets, healthcare and tech. So it's kind of funny with uh, Adam Parker there from Morgan Stanley. If you think about it, he was bearish, then bullish, then balanced, now bullish. So he's uh, moved straight on through those. And uh, taking us through what to expect here more locally is Francis Lund, Chief Executive Officer at Geo Securities. Hello, Francis. So what we do is we'll get your mic up at some point uh, in the next few seconds, and then we'll have our conversation. I'm Brian Curtis here at the mothership of RTHK up on uh, Broadcast Drive, and Francis is down in our studios in Admiralty. A very good morning to you, Francis Lynn. 
Yeah, well, I guess there's uh, maybe the link underneath the uh, harbor is broken or something. So we'll do a couple of other things and then we'll see if we can uh, bring Francis in. Um, I can make some jokes about our, our, our technical expertise, but I, I won't do it. I wanted to tell you about this Texas billionaire fellow, Richard Kinder. I mentioned that he pocketed almost a billion dollars in a day. Well, it's uh, actually $800 million. Um, the value of his pipeline businesses jumped after he said that he would consolidate all of his companies. The windfall is part of an unwinding of Master Limited Partnerships, MLPs. You've probably heard about this before when people are talking about REITs and MLPs and private equity and sort of alternative uh, types of investments. And what's interesting is that these Master Limited Partnerships is something that Mr. Kinder actually had a hand in popularizing. But the consolidation runs counter to an industry trend. Here's an analyst. It's, it's a little bit against the trend where uh, a lot of other companies are moving toward um, spinning off assets into these master limited partnerships, which just means it's a type of, of company um, that doesn't pay uh, corporate income tax uh, because it, they, uh, it's in a tax code they get uh, uh, their revenue from natural resources. Um, but there's been a lot of activity in that space. Energy transfer is a, a rival that's been very acquisitive, uh, had a uh, tried, went after target resources that Right. Through. Okay. Um, and Hess uh, is, is j- announced that they were going to spin some assets off into one of these MLPs and investors went wild. All right. So let's turn our focus back here to Hong Kong. As I mentioned in the headlines, Dairy Farm is paying 5.69 billion yuan for 20 percent of Yonghoi Superstores. And Hutchison may sell control of Harbor Ring to a Chinese company called Oceanwide Holdings. And we'll try again now with Francis Lun, our first guest, uh, CEO of Geo Securities. Good morning, Francis. Yeah, well, we're still having that problem, uh, which is is kind of interesting. Uh, We'll hopefully be able to go to our second guest. Uh, uh, Okay, so let's go to John Woods, Chief Investment Strategist at City Private Bank. John, good morning. Yeah, it's a good thing, actually. Uh, I wouldn't have wanted you to have to sit on the line for the entire interview with Francis. Uh, so <laughs> let's have a chat, and then we'll see if we can get that link uh, connected with our Admiralty Studios. How are you this morning, sir? What are you looking at? Um, what is on your horizon this morning? Mr. Woods. <laughs> Honestly, I have not <laughs> I have no idea. We must have just lost the line there. So, Francis, uh, are, are, are you with me now? Yes. Can you hear me now? Okay, yeah, this is a catastrophic beginning to the morning. But, you know, it's live radio. And I think some people who were basically driving and not listening too much, they're listening now saying, ooh, we've got some drama here. Anyway, <laughs> Francis, all this nonsense. Uh, let's get down to business here. Uh, so I mentioned those two sort of local stories. Um, yes. Uh, quite interesting in a sense that Li Ka-shing might be selling again. Well, he has been selling for the past few years, actually. Uh, I think uh, from the latest uh, 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 Hutchison uh, uh, midterm report, you can see that all his businesses, various divisions are growing very slowly. So he cannot uh, achieve uh, 
uh, very fast uh, operating growth at all from any of his businesses. So the only the only thing he can do is really do asset trading, selling businesses and trading businesses. That's what actually what he has been doing. So he's selling all his businesses that are not growing at 10% or more. So uh, that's why uh, and try to create profit from asset trading. That's what he's been doing. Since he's known as an asset trader, should we not read too much into that then uh, about overall conditions, his feelings about Occupy Central, his confidence (laughs) in Hong Kong people or the leadership here? Well, uh, uh, the uh, the market has been saying that he's been uh, 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 disinvesting from Hong Kong recently, and um, well, uh, from his activities, you you can you can probably say yes. But I think his more concern is really how how to deal with businesses that have matured already that that that, that are entering into a. A, a period of stagnant growth. That's what his retaining business and the harbor business been doing. So he's trying to sell these and then trying to get into some high growth business or try to get into some, uh, uh, high yield businesses like some utilities, I guess, distribution, electricity, electricity distribution, etc. So I think, uh, uh, I think we'll see that from, uh, but Chiang Kong group for, for several years to come. And what about you? Are you confident about the future here, or would you also be a little bit nervous with Occupy Central looming? No, I, I'm not nervous about Occupy Central at all. I think that will cause some disruption, but uh, not really a, a whole lot. And and I think the the business community is very calm regarding this. I don't think uh, there will be some disruption. But 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 I think the the big story this year is really. Uh, 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 Shanghai Hong Kong Connect. Yeah. Uh, money from China is coming to Hong Kong, buying up shares in Hong Kong, and also overseas money uh, coming into Hong Kong through Hong Kong and buying A shares. I think the biggest drag on the Hong Kong market for the past four years has been the abysmal performance of A shares. It hasn't uh, 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 grown. Uh, uh, Rise at risen at all for the past five years. It's been stuck at a two thousand level for the past five years. Hopefully, with some fresh money, the uh, the Shanghai Composite Index can be kicked up to three thousand points, and then we will all be happy. <laughs> Do you think the flow will be greater from mainlanders buying Hong Kong stocks, uh, big brand names like HSBC and AIA and Tencent, or do you think the flow will be greater for the other way? Well, surprisingly, the story I, I got from mainland brokers are really slightly different. Uh, in fact, right now, uh, rich mainlanders have a channels to funnel their money outside to buy up shares uh, globally. And the number one destination for them is really America. Uh, they, are, they want to buy shares like Apple, uh, Google, and uh, Microsoft, etc., and of course they will be interested in like HSBC, Tencent, and uh, and AIA. But the but the bulk of their interest is really in the the big names like Facebook, uh, Google. So so I think how are they able to get money out to uh, to buy those shares? 
Well, I I don't know. They have many channels. Actually, I think the uh, rich millionaires uh, always find a way to to circumvent the uh, the exchange control. But if that's the case, Francis, why would this Hong Kong Shanghai Connect be a big deal then? Well. Uh, Is it more a big deal for us here, investors here, who can buy A shares? Well, uh, uh, local, locally, actually, Hong Kong residents are not really that interested in A shares. But when you talk talk to uh, global investors like institutions, overseas funds, they're very keen on buying A shares because uh, 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 of of all the major markets uh, in the world, A shares valuation is the cheapest. Is still under ten times uh, earnings. The price to book is one time only, so it's much much cheaper than the S and P, which is about seventeen times, or uh, German DAX, which is about sixteen times. So, so you have a sixty percent to seventy percent discount to global markets for China stocks, Chinese stocks. So, so I so, think that's so a big that, attraction for overseas funds to buy into Asia. So, getting out in front of that, since it doesn't start until October. We would you just advise people to buy one of these ETFs like the A50 that uh, yeah. that does have a basket of China stocks in it? Well, definitely. That's actually what the people have been doing. Yeah, it's been and, uh, pretty you, you look at the uh, 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 2823 and 2822, these two A50 uh, ETFs, uh, they... Uh, they they've been taking uh, like uh, fresh money, like a twenty billion, uh, two two billion uh, Hong Kong dollars a week, something like that. So uh, you you look at the turnover in volume uh, in among traders, they're always at the top. So so you can see this enormous demand for 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 Asia A fifty ETFs. One of the reasons that China stocks um, have underperformed for the past many years, I mean, yeah. well, one obvious reason was they went up a lot in 2007 <laughs> yeah. before they started falling. But even aside from that, people are worried about debt in China. They're yeah. very worried about a property uh, meltdown. And so people look at overall debt and they look at uh, debt to GDP, which has risen quite a lot. I saw some interesting research over the weekend, which was um, yeah, you can, you can um, acknowledge that number being high, but if you look at uh, debt to overall savings, it's quite surprising because both companies and individuals and households in China have yep. saved a lot of money. Definitely. And the savings is mm-hmm. something like 160% of, of GDP. So where yeah. do you fall on this uh, breakdown? Well, I think uh, uh, I think I think it's a habit for Chinese uh, to save a lot for the future, especially right now. Is saving the money to buy buy a home because uh, uh, e- even even uh, 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 property prices have stabilized in the past few months. Uh, uh, property are still are really out of reach for most ordinary citizens. So there's a tendency, a propensity to oversave for Chinese, uh, uh, unlike uh, American consumers who spend uh, eleven dollars $11 on every ten dollars they earn. So, so I think that that, that is really that provides a cushion for the the, the debt problem that everybody is talking about. Yeah, I think, uh, but. But still, uh, uh, the the, uh, the latest figures is that for local governments, they they, they ran up a twenty one trillion 
UN in uh, uh, gov- local government that, yep. but okay. I think they have to control that, and yep. they are controlling That's that. That's a discussion for another day. Francis, I'm sorry about the difficulties yep. uh, connecting with you, but thank you very much uh, for joining us this morning. Francis Lin, Chief Executive Officer of Geosecurities, and now we are joined by John Woods, uh, Chief Investment Strategist at City Private Bank. Um, John, good morning. Thank you for coming back to the program. Sorry we lost you last time. Francis and I have just been talking about overall um, investing and and how stocks in Hong Kong and China have lagged a lot of late. Uh, Is that part of your regional strategy at the moment? Um, Actually, focus on uh, China and Hong Kong and uh, uh, broad North Asia in general has been part of our strategy uh, for some time. That's largely predicated on our expectation that the U.S. economy uh, will continue to expand, uh, will continue to uh, gain traction, uh, and typically that benefits North Asia given its much uh, greater exposure uh, and leverage to the, the, the trade cycle. Aren't you more of a fixed income specialist than an equity guy? Um, yes, uh, I'm running the fixed income business here for City Investment Management at, uh, at City. And do, do you worry about um, what's happened with the whole bond complex uh, over the past many years? And how distorted is it by uh, the money printing um, in the U.S. and elsewhere? <laughs> That's a very large question. Um, I'm not remotely worried about the uh, quality um, of earnings and uh, creditworthiness here in Asia. Um, the Asian fixed income complex, as you call it, uh, has actually uh, performed extremely well year-to-date. We've had total returns uh, in our portfolios of uh, slightly over 5%, which I, I think, given it's only uh, August, is, uh, is pretty um, uh, robust for, uh, for this type of asset class. Uh, I guess, inevitably, um, the inflection point um, in the U.S. Treasury is something that people are watching for. Um, in the fourth quarter of last year, it was expected that we would see a very dramatic repricing of treasuries uh, as the U.S. Uh, uh, continued to grow. But we had that very poor first quarter in, in terms of weather, and that's allowed uh, um, uh, U.S. treasuries to remain reasonably flat and reasonably supportive. Uh, in fact, um, I think um, some of the, the, the more um, uh, dramatic forecasts are, are not proving to be the case. Uh, and I think a, a steady tick up in treasuries will be largely offset by some gradual tightening in credit spreads. In other words, total returns um, for investors in this asset class, I think, will remain uh, reasonably supported for the duration of this year. I guess what some people are worried about is that um, investors, because the performance um, you know, has been difficult um, and the yields have been pretty low, that they may have taken on a lot of leverage to buy all manner of bonds, uh, not only government bonds, but um, investment-grade corporates, and particularly a lot of high yield. You see so much money rushed in there that the yields have dropped down to a fairly low amount, notwithstanding the recent selling here over the past week. We haven't seen a huge amount of leverage. Uh, the leverage community um, compared to, for example, 2007 are nothing close to the levels uh, of debt um, that they, uh, that they um, incurred uh, uh, around that period of time. Um, yes, there's a, a, a substantial weight of money um, looking at the high-yield market, as you point out, and certainly we've seen uh, that being reflected in um, tighter spreads uh, and lower yields. Uh, in Asia, I would say that's not so much the case. Um, the high-yield market here remains, um, I think, um, at reasonable valuations 
uh, spreads have not tightened anything like they have in uh, the United States. Uh, but uh, overall, I, I think that um, leverage fears are, are possibly over-exaggerated at this stage. Uh, and certainly with this expectation of higher yields in the, in the coming quarters, um, a highly leveraged position in, in, in for example, uh, single B or double B names, I'm not sure would be particularly prudent. Yes, uh, you know, we have talked a lot on this program about the um, difficulty in figuring out the relationship between economic growth and stock market performance. Um, what yeah. about what about uh, people who are mostly invested in bonds? Um, you know, if you look at the China economy and the Hong Kong economy, um, is that a good story for you? Uh, well, obviously, there's a large uh, proportion of earnings in investor decisions, uh, and that's as true for uh, fixed income credit as it is for equities. Uh, in fact, we are seeing um, now the earnings cycle beginning to turn higher and upward, I should say, both in China uh, and in Hong Kong. We're seeing, for example, analyst earning revisions now um, moving higher, earnings expectations, EPS growth uh, starting to stabilize and improve. And I think that's uh, leading and supporting uh, some of the momentum into uh, equities in this part of the world. And frankly, it's the same uh, in the fixed income space. Uh, I think for this to continue, uh, Asian uh, equities uh, in general and China and Hong Kong need to be more than a momentum story. They need to be, frankly, more than a valuation story. Uh, what we need to see is um, ongoing reform, particularly in the SOE sector in China, such that these earnings improvements can be sustained. Uh, otherwise, it may be the case that the rally that we've seen over the last <clears throat> month or so peters out towards the end of the year. You'll be probably pleased to hear that um, one of our top uh, commentators on this program, I won't mention his name because he might be embarrassed, uh, I asked him, uh, who are people that come on this program that you like? He said, I really like John Woods uh, from City. Um, he's a real sound money guy. And uh, so that, that, and I know kind of from interviewing you a few times in the past that you're not a big fan of QE. QE is starting to go away in the United States. Uh, will it have a dramatic effect, um, you know, once they signal interest rates going up on things like bonds and stocks out here? Well, you know, uh, it's a very good question because um, the last two times um, uh, QE brought to, was brought to a halt, uh, obviously we had pronounced uh, corrections in equity markets, and by that I mean QE1 and QE2. Um, we have seen, um, obviously, this um, uh, tapering in, uh, in QE3, uh, and that's expected to complete in October. So if we were to see um, uh, a correction in equities, it would be consistent and congruent with previous experiences. Um, I think that the whole market is trying to call a correction, uh, particularly in U.S. equities, and frankly, uh, the complete secession of, um, of, uh, of the taper uh, it, it is as good a, a reason as any. Um, for me, though, the, the main focus, obviously, will be uh, on inflation uh, expectations, uh, and it will be on the labor market in the United States. If we are to see those two series of price to the upside, uh, particularly inflation, then, of course, the market might start to, how can I put this, uh, perhaps uh, it, not quite ignore uh, the comments of Yellen, but perhaps to um, start pricing in high yields itself. Then we would start to see term yields rise. If that were the case, we would likely see an increase in the value of the U.S. dollar. Uh, and for us in Asia, uh, the value of the dollar is extremely important to our risk assets. The stronger it goes, uh, typically the weaker our risk 
as it's performed. Yeah. Uh, and so that's what I'm going to be looking at most closely uh, okay. over the next couple of quarters. All right, uh, John, thank you very much for joining us. Sorry to lose you earlier, and uh, thanks for being patient. That's John Woods, Chief Investment Strategist, City Private Bank. That's uh, the first half hour of the program. More coming up shortly, mainly cloudy with some showers today. Some sunshine expected, very hot, 32 as the maximum. The outlook for the next few days, showers and thunderstorms uh, straight on through the latter part of the week. But then towards the weekend, the showers to taper off. The news is next. Thanks for joining us. Eight thirty one, the news with Samantha Butler. President Obama has welcomed a move by Iraq's president to appoint a new prime minister, Haider al-Abadi, calling it a promising step forward. Mr. Obama said he'd spoken to Mr. Abadi and urged him to quickly form a new government that would unite all of Iraq's different communities. The BBC's Barbara Plett-Usher reports from Washington. President Obama said targeted American airstrikes had prevented the Islamist militant advance on Kurdish regions in northern Iraq. But he said there was no American military solution to the larger crisis in the country. Only an inclusive Iraqi government could unify the fight against Islamist fighters who've taken over large swathes of territory, he said. He urged the newly nominated prime minister to form a cabinet that represents all of Iraq's ethnic and sectarian communities and said mobilizing U.S. and international support would be easier once that happens. The ousted Prime Minister Nouri al-Maliki has angrily denounced the appointment. Mr Maliki, who's seen by many as a divisive figure, had made it clear he wanted a third term in office, but many of his own Shia allies nominated Mr Abadi instead. Eight Chinese medical workers who treated patients suffering from the deadly Ebola virus have been placed in quarantine in Sierra Leone. The Chinese ambassador in Freetown said the patients included seven Chinese doctors and a nurse, as well as five local nurses. The government of Liberia says American officials have approved its request for sample doses of an experimental drug to be delivered to the country to combat the deadly outbreak of Ebola. The experimental drug is expected to be delivered later this week to treat doctors who are infected with Ebola. The country's information minister, Lewis Brown, said the government was aware of the risks associated with the largely untested drug ZMAP, but it said it was the only option available. The alternative to not testing this is death, is certain death, if you will. Uh, And so we know there may be risk associated with it, uh, but Uh, Choosing a risk and choosing uh, dying, I'm sure many would prefer to choose to see that risk happen. You're listening to the news on RTHK. Good morning. Welcome to Money for Nothing. I'm Brian Curtis. Among our top stories this morning, the U.S. throws its weight behind a new prime minister in Iraq, although the current prime minister doesn't want to leave office. The Fed vice chair warns of slow growth in the United States and Europe, and that has strengthened the doves on the Federal Reserve. And European stocks rallied after a very weak patch. And we see markets rallying here in Asia this morning to the tune of about half of one percent. And we'll look more closely 
mostly at business and finance later in this half hour, continuing now with our look at news in more detail. President Obama welcoming a move by Iraq's president to appoint a new prime minister, Haider al-Abadi. The U.S. leader called it a promising step forward to break the political deadlock in Baghdad. Mr. Obama said he'd spoken to Dr. Abadi and urged him to quickly form a new government that would unite all of Iraq's different communities. Earlier today, Vice President Biden and I called Dr. Abadi to congratulate him and to urge him to form a new cabinet as quickly as possible, one that's inclusive of all Iraqis and one that represents all Iraqis. Meanwhile, I urge all Iraqi political leaders to work peacefully through the political process in the days ahead. And this new Iraqi leadership has a difficult task. It has to regain the confidence of its citizens by governing inclusively and by taking steps to demonstrate its resolve. The United States stands ready to support a government that addresses the needs and grievances of all Iraqi people. The incumbent Iraqi Prime Minister Nouri al-Maliki has criticized the nomination. Mr. al-Maliki called the move unconstitutional and he is vowing to hold on to power. So why are the Americans so intent on seeing him replaced? Here's the BBC's Barbara Plett in Washington. Mr. Obama and other American officials have said for some time that an inclusive government, which is how they phrase it, is necessary to deal with Iraq's crisis. Uh, They believe, along with many other observers, that Mr. Maliki's uh, policies have inflamed sectarian divisions which have alienated particularly uh, the Sunni minority, uh, which has again uh, brought some support for the Islamist militants that it might not otherwise have had and has um, uh, has helped the spread across the country uh, of the Islamic State. And when President Obama authorized limited airstrikes, he again repeated that we are not the solution. American military power is not the solution. The Iraqis themselves have to have a government that can reach out to every community in the country, and only that way can they unify against the Islamist threat. That is Mr. Obama's uh, policy, and he repeated it again today when he um, welcomed the nomination of Mr. Abadi and urged him to form such a cabinet as soon as possible. That's Barbara Plett Usher in Washington. Here at home, the estimated cost of the troubled express rail link has jumped 10% to $71.5 billion. This was announced by the MTR Corporation after it earlier admitted running into construction problems that would put completion of the project back a couple of years to 2017. The latest assessment puts the cost of the link in excess of the $67 billion uh, that was uh, approved back in 2010. It's also $6.5 billion more more than the MTRC's previous estimate, which was made last year. RTHK's Hugh Chiverton asked Hong Wing Tat, a professor in civil and structural engineering at Polytechnic University, if $71.5 billion will be the final figure. Well, you never know this is the last word, this is the last estimate, until the project finished. Um, the main problem is a lot of the work still seems to be uncontrollable and sometimes this is a, um, you can say they have tried their best knowledge to estimate at the moment because the public would like to know what sort of scale uh, of the final settlement in terms of money and also when definitely will the project complete it. Um, for the 6.5 billion Uh, in excess at the moment, Um, I think there would be a lot of legal 
may not be disputes, may be discussion about whose responsibility it would be. There would be three parties. One would be the contractors, uh, second MTR, the third one, of course, would be the government. It really depends on uh, project by project. I mean, contract by contract, because the whole project has many contracts. For example, in West Kowloon main station, uh, a lot of the factors MTRC should have grasped, they should have the full control of the construction sequence, construction method, and then control of the uh, finance. But they fail to do so. I would think that for that particular contract, the MTR would have responsibility. Of course, they can see whether the contractor also has the responsibility because some of the um, methods the contractor may have changed. So it really depends on which contract. For example, another contract across the boundary uh, through the wetland from the north to into Hong Kong. For that particular contract, I don't think the MDRC has any control on it. It is the government's agreement. So if that delay for a whole year, definitely the Hong Kong government will have to bear their cost. Meantime, a spokesman for the government said that the government might file a claim for general damages against the MTRC if it's found that the rail operator breached its obligations. The World Health Organization is holding a meeting of its medical ethics specialists to discuss the use of a new experimental treatment for Ebola. The current outbreak in West Africa has already claimed nearly 1,000 lives. There's no known cure and no vaccine. But the conditions of two infected American aid workers improved after they were given doses of an experimental treatment as yet untested on humans. Here in Hong Kong, the Academy of Pharmacy has urged the government to consider importing a small amount of these experimental drugs. This would be part of its contingency plan to deal with any outbreak of Ebola here. Well, to tell us why, we're joined by Iris Chang, a pharmacy consultant with the Academy. Ms. Chang, good morning. Good morning. Sorry to make you wait a little bit. Um, Why do you think that we need to import something like this when we don't have any cases here? Yeah, because um, it's really a matter of time uh, in any country that we will be having uh, some of the visitors from overseas coming in and bringing over the Ebola virus. So I think it it would be best if there is such a medication available, even in the experimental stages, that we can be able to sort out the logistics as to how to apply to get some of the doses of the medicine through different channels, maybe participating in the study or uh, even in the special cases that we can queue online to get some of the medications that may be uh, effective on those patients. That's a very scary comment that you made there, particularly at the outset. You say it's only a matter of time before the Ebola virus does get here and probably everywhere else. Well, I think it really is a matter of experience that we've seen from a lot of the uh, different communicable diseases and some of the global pandemics that people carry viruses all over the place through traveling. So with the scale yesterday and the day before about maybe suspected cases around places around the world, even in Hong Kong, that it's really a time that we really start about thinking, uh, how do we uh, remedy the situation if we do get patients instead of just leaving people to symptomatic treatment? Would you even go so far as to liken Ebola with something like SARS? Uh, in, eventually, if we don't do enough preventive measures, 
and if we don't take enough precautions, uh, as in the cases that we have seen uh, in a few days before, that people are not as alert as they should be, especially in public areas and places where tourists really go, uh, to heighten the, uh, the hygiene measures and also take uh, special care uh, with vomiting matters and uh, some of the fluids or maybe blood or sputum that may be disposed of in the public areas, even in the garbage can. Do we have access to the same drugs that were being used on these two American doctors? We don't have access at all because those drugs are not sold anywhere. It's not even registered yet. So we're caught in a stage where it's in the very early stages of experimentation. So one of the only ways maybe we can get is a special program uh, through a queue with the WHO, World Health Organization, or maybe participating uh, into the clinical trials uh, that's being conducted uh, in the USA, and maybe they would extend that worldwide. Could we conceivably import anything uh, before the WHO actually approves these drugs? It's very difficult because the number of doses that's available is limited uh, because of the production and then, of course, of the legal issues that's involved with the company that uh, gives us the drugs, that they would be very concerned if there is no uh, the waiver or disclaimer that we will not uh, pursue any legal uh, court case if anything happens to the patient because of safety reasons. If we don't have any of these experimental drugs, what would happen if we were to get an Ebola case at the moment? At the moment, there's really no drug available uh, to treat patients, so it's really about symptomatic relief uh, of reducing the fever, the muscle aches, the vomiting, and just really depending to boost up our immune system to uh, overcome the disease ourselves. And as you look at these trials, how long does it normally take for a drug to be developed? Uh, And especially in an emergency like this, are there ways to speed up the procedures? In the normal cases, uh, it takes years, probably tens of years. But however, in emergency cases, uh, the the data that may come in are very preliminary, but they still get accepted. Uh, So we're looking around, you know, half a year or to a year of getting the results in before uh, we're sure of the the preliminary uh, findings about the safety of the product itself. Okay, Ms. Chang, thank you very much uh, for coming on the program this morning. We'll, We'll talk again. And that is Iris Chang, who's a pharmacy consultant with the Academy of Pharmacy here in Hong Kong. The Medical Council says it will fight for the right to investigate all cases of doctor misconduct. This came from its chairman, Joseph Lau, as the council was urged to investigate a doctor who issued more than 100 inaccurate pathology reports in the nine months up to May. United Christian Hospital, where the pathologist worked, insisted that all of her errors had been rectified. It also apologized for the mistakes and said that it would set up an independent panel to investigate. But a former president of the Hong Kong Medical Association, Dr. Choi Kin, says this isn't good enough. When a doctor commits a a mistake and is found to be substandard. This is an issue for the medical council. This is not an issue for the hospital authority. Hospital authority cannot and should not decide on standards and misconduct. The system or the ordinance is such that only the medical council has the power to discipline the doctor and no other organization has that power. The errors by the pathologist led to the wrong diagnosis of being made in some 17 different cases. Signs of cancerous cells were missed in one patient. Dr. Choi said that errors in any pathology report can be disastrous. This is an, an uh, alarming figure. This has probably never happened in Hong Kong. 
in the past, if you have a pathology report, it's like the gospel truth. You, you, you have the pathology report, then you start your treatment. If your pathology report is wrong, then it is disastrous because you will be given the wrong treatment. If it, uh, if it is supposed to be cancer and you miss it, then you and, and you are not treating it as cancer, then there is delay in treatment and the possibility of spreading of the cancer may occur. If it is not cancer and you diagnose cancer, then you're giving a very fatal medication that, that may cause death of the patient. So, so this is a, a, a total disaster. And that's Dr. Choi Kin, a former president of the Hong Kong Medical Association. The head of the Basic Law Institute, Alan Hu, has accused the government of failing to fulfill its responsibility on political reform. He said the chief executive's report on reform, submitted to Beijing last month, omitted crucial points. And he said further explanation of the aspirations of Hong Kong people was needed. Mr. Hu also said he saw nothing in the Basic Law that stipulates that a chief executive candidate must get the backing of more than half of the nominating committee. We agree with the Hong Kong Bar Association that we can't see anything in the basic law and insist that the candidate must have the endorsement of more than 50% of the nominating committee in a what we must emphasize is a proper election, right? That is collectively by the whole nominating committee at one instance, a proper election in secret ballot that they will nominate the candidates. And there's nothing that insists that they must have more than 50% in the votes collected in order uh, to satisfy the term of democratic procedure in Article 45. Whoever has the top votes of the committee that cast their votes in terms of the number of candidates returned will be the candidates under the basic law. Mr. Hu also called on the Hong Kong government to allow civil recommendation for the next sea election. Under this proposal, ordinary voters would be able to put forward potential candidates. These recommendations would then go forward to the nominating committee. Although you can't have civic nomination, there's nothing to stop you having civic recommendation. Because all you need to do is to define the power of the nominating committee. The nominating committee's power is to produce official candidates for universal suffrage. But to be a participant in the beginning doesn't have to involve the power of the nominating committee. So you can have a one-eighth threshold endorsement or alternatively a, a certain amount of voter support. So that means that the nominating committee has an opportunity to consider a candidate who has broad popular support in their consideration. That's senior counsel Alan Hu, who is also a member of China's top advisory body. The standing committee of the National People's Congress is due to make a decision on reforms for that vote in 2017 in about two weeks' time. The time is now 11 minutes before 9 o'clock. Well, China is looking to increase its reliance on natural gas in the coming year, with an expected consumption jump of about 17 percent. Increased imports and rising domestic production will should fill the demand gap for now. But longer term, it's not clear that supplies will be able to match the growing appetite in China. Total power plant capacity is expected to jump 2.3 times through the year 2020. Joining us now on the program in our studios to discuss how the industry is uh, having a big impact on global markets is Joseph Giacobelli of Bloomberg Intelligence. Mr. Giacobelli, good morning. Morning, Brian. So I guess we could see this coming for a long time, this big increase in demand. Uh, Do you think supply will keep up? 
Yeah, I think there's plenty of supply. The question is, uh, you know, when is the supply coming and at what price? And, you know, we pretty much face the same situation in Hong Kong where we want to use more gas. And uh, at the end, we ended up building a pipeline or connected to a pipeline into China, not giving us a lot of choice in terms of price. China has been a lot more clever than Hong Kong. They've got uh, pipelines going into China. They've got LNG receiving terminals, receiving gas from everywhere. And last but not least, they're also developing gas resources domestically. So lots more, uh, lots more variety of, uh, of imports. And was it all changed a little bit by this massive deal signed with Russia for $400 billion worth of natural gas? Um, Yes and no. I think it was all in the pipeline, and that's not really coming until closer to 2020 anyway. Um, And the key for China, again, Brian was always saying, you know, China versus Hong Kong – although Hong Kong is part of China. Um, but if you look at uh, you know what Hong Kong has done, we pretty much um, rely on one or two sources where China is going to be relying on different sources. Therefore, um, in terms of supplies, they're okay. But most importantly, because you are not buying from one single source, so your price... Um, you know, you've got a little bit more choice in terms of price. The price is significantly higher in Hong Kong and in China than it is in the United States at the moment. Uh, is there a chance that um, we will revert more to that level or or not? Uh, I think in the short term, uh, no, there's probably no way. Um, in the United States, you really had a development of shell gas, which really drove prices down massively. Um, and in Japan right now, you're paying probably ten, eleven dollars, as opposed to the U.S. right now is uh, you know three and a half, four dollars. So the differential is huge, but it's really a domestic resource. But China has a lot of shale gas too, maybe even more than the United States. Uh, is there a big technology deficit that uh, is the reason they're not getting at it at the moment? Um, we could talk about that for an hour, but we probably only got 30 seconds. So um, I think the issue there is, number one, um, there's geological differences. Uh, and also, right now, China is water poor, whereas the U.S., where you get the gas, is water rich. So there's a lot of challenges for them to go out and get the shell gas. So as you look out over the period from now to 2020, uh, is it likely that prices will go up before they go down? Or how do you see the, the profile of, of prices for natural gas going forward? Um, we, 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 we at Bloomberg Intelligence actually make uh, uh, estimates, but I could tell you that if I had my uh, salsa analyst uh, on, uh, I would uh, pretty much say I really don't know. Yeah. And the reason it's why we don't... Predict. It's tough to predict. It's tough to predict because on the supply side, um, you've got potential resources like we talked about China. So potentially China is going to have lots of gas uh, tomorrow morning and uh, and then, you know... Uh, most most supplied and demand, therefore prices go down. On the other side, on the demand front, uh, you know, what is Japan going to do with the nuclear uh, reactors? You know, how many are going to be turned on and when? Uh, Taiwan is looking at shutting down its nuclear capacity and it's going to have to replace that with coal and uh, gas. So long story short, you know, you've got a lot of demand pools out there and a lot of uncertainties. This program uh, is a lot about investment as well as um, macroeconomics and uh, yeah. looking at uh, you know mergers and acquisitions yeah. and business stories. Uh, which are some of the companies maybe listed in Hong Kong that are best positioned, do you think, um, for investors? Um, 
Right. I mean, it, it's different pockets, Brian. If you look at uh, on the power generation side, the the guys who are investing in gas-fired generation in China are the, you know, Huanang, uh, Huadian, all of these uh, Chinese state-owned enterprises. Datang. Uh, Datang as well. Um, in terms of the... Uh, Oil and gas side, that's not really my area of expertise, so I'll, I'll skip that one. Uh, but there's, a, there's, there's quite a few companies on the gas distribution front. Uh, one is our very own Tang Gas China, owned by Hong Kong China Gas. Another one is ENN, which used to be called Xingao. Um, and these guys have done a formidable job at expanding their gas distribution network in China over the past 10 years. Tell me a little bit about electricity consumption in China and how much it's moving, because a lot of people look at that as a kind of uh, proxy for economic growth. Yeah, I mean, we had, uh, you know, 5.3% uh, or so in the first half. Again, it's not bad because we, you've got to understand we're coming from a very high base now. Uh, it's not an emerging economy anymore. And uh, for the whole year, a couple of the Chinese uh, entities are looking at about 6%. So it's still pretty good, uh, pretty good growth out there in terms of um, consumption. That's driven really by industry, and that's really the one we watch because the two out of three, kilowatt hours used are used by heavy industry in China. And in terms of electricity output, the actual production of it, um, how much is that expected to grow out over the next many years as, as, for instance, some of the cities in the West and some of those areas in the West get more developed? Um, <clears throat> in terms of uh, the, the quick answer is in terms of coal-fired generation, that's growing at the lowest rate. Uh, it's low single digit. Everything else, nuclear, gas, um, renewables, you know, wind, solar, et cetera, it's all growing at double digits uh, between now and uh, 2020. Mm. So, you know, for people who are really worried about environmental conditions, uh, as you know the industry as well as you do uh, researching it, uh, you look out, say, over the next five years, will China be cleaner or will it be dirtier? Um, I think it's going to very slowly get better, hmm. uh, but I don't think our hair here in Hong Kong is going to get uh, is going to get better anytime soon. Uh, they because our to- mix isn't changing fast enough, whereas in China they're they're going with more gas and more nuclear and less coal. Yeah, and don't forget in Hong Kong, and I know there's a big controversy, and I heard your program talking about this over the years. Uh, you know, there's a big controversy about how much actually comes from Hong Kong, how much actually comes from Guangdong. Mm. And if you look how much coal-fired generation there is in Guangdong, that's not shutting down anytime soon. Uh, so I don't think that the air in Hong Kong is going to get any better anytime soon. In places like Beijing, actually, um, they've targeted to have zero coal uh, contribution in terms of the primary energy mix by 2020. Uh, so there, that, that's moving uh, very, very rapidly. I think places like uh, you know Shenzhen and places like Shanghai would also see pretty much the same situation where you know coal-fired generation or coal as an input in terms of primary uh, energy consumption is going to go down to zero. Okay, Joseph, thank you very much for joining us here on the program. Uh, Nice to end on a slightly positive note. And thanks very much for listening to the program. Sounds like you're one of our our listeners out there. Since 1990. One of three or four. (laughs) Okay, thank you very much. Joseph Giacobelli, uh, Senior Power and Utilities Analyst at Bloomberg Intelligence. Well... 
This is Money for Nothing. The time is three minutes before nine o'clock. We've just got a little bit more ground to cover. I can tell you how the markets have changed since we looked at this uh, last. Um, the Nikkei is up about half a percent. That's a gain of 75 points, 15,202. Australia and Seoul are also higher. Uh, Australia, the ASX 200, up about 1%. And in Seoul, the Kospi up about two-thirds of a percent. Gold has um, changed now a little bit. Uh, it's changing or trading at 1,308. Dollars fifty cents an ounce, and oil prices are kind of steady around one hundred four. The latest Brent crude price one hundred four sixty. The American actor and comedian Robin Williams has died at the age of 63. He's believed to have taken his own life. Robin Williams shot to fame in the TV series Mork and Mindy and went on to star in films like Goodwill Hunting and Mrs. Doubtfire. Details here from the BBC's Alex Alistair Leithhead in Los Angeles. The sheriff's office coroner division suspects the death to be a suicide due to asphyxia, but a comprehensive investigation must be completed before a final determination is made. Um, we've also had um, confirmation from um, Robin Williams' agent as well uh, that uh, that he died. His publicist, I apologise, um, said that Robin Williams passed away this morning. He has been battling severe depression of late. This is a tragic and sudden loss. The family respectfully asked for their privacy as they grieve during this very difficult time. Uh, that statement didn't confirm it was a suicide, however... We've also got a statement from Susan Schneider, um, Robin Williams' wife. Um, she says, This morning I lost my husband and my best friend. While the world lost one of its most beloved artists and beautiful human beings, I'm utterly heartbroken. On behalf of Robin's family, we're asking for privacy during a time of profound grief. As he's remembered, it is our hope the focus will not be on Robin's death, but on the countless moments of joy and laughter that he gave to millions. That was a statement uh, released by uh, Susan Schneider, his wife. Alexander Leithhead from the BBC in Los Angeles. Well, that's our program today. Mainly cloudy with showers today. Some sunny intervals too. It will be hot. The maximum temperature 32. The outlook showers to be heavy at times with thunderstorms the next couple of days. Showers easing off the latter part of the week. Morning Brew is next. And this is Radio 3.